The one-eyed is king among the blind. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, full fat coke. I, I was falling asleep just before the, before we started. So, Berenix, are you recording this already? Yeah, I am. Oh my. <laughs> Hello and welcome to uh, the second episode of the Photocast Network Roundtable, for lack of a better name. We're hoping uh, that uh, we'll come up with a better name before long. And I just want to welcome you uh, all to, 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 the, to the show. And with me today is, well this is Ivarian X. Perello from the Candid Frame. And with me today is John Arnold from Photo Walkthrough. Hi, how you doing? Jeff... Kurto, I can't believe I just drew a blank on your show. That's how professional I am. <laughs> www.camerapositioned.com. Hey, that's a good start. Oh, Jesus. Leave that in, leave that in. Oh, leave it in, leave it in. <laughs> and, and Chris Markart from Tips from the Top Floor. Hi there. So how are you guys doing today? Very well. Uh, Pretty I good, pretty good. I, I actually needed some Coca Cola, obviously, this morning. <laughs> well, I've just finished my anybody. can of Coke for that reason. I haven't had any, but I just uh, I just arrived here in the studio to record this, and it's freezing cold here, so I'm awake. I'm wide awake. Oh. Oh, I'm sat in a warm room. It's far too easy to drift off here. Okay. <laughs> well, let's talk about uh, the reaction of the to the first episode. Um, I heard that you guys got a couple of emails. Why don't we start with that? Yeah. Okay, well, I'll jump in, because um, I got, I think, three emails all saying the same thing. Um, and they all said, last week, earlier on, the first topic, Iberian uh, X said, you can call yourself a photographer when you stop talking about gear. And then, for the rest of the show, we pretty much talked about gear. Um, so, I just wanted to acknowledge the point. Um, it's true, we did. Um, and uh, I think... What I guess I would respond to by saying is that we're not expecting to talk just to people who are professional photographers here. We're trying to help people learn to be photographers. So I think it's you've got to learn both sides of this coin. You've got to learn the artistic side and the technical side. So I think there is room for a bit of gear talk. But So that's my response to it. It's my excuse yeah. and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> yeah, I think we're going to make That's a, my story. Yeah, I think it, we're going to make an effort to, to, to mix it up, though... Uh, you know, there may be some days where we're emphasizing gear a little more than, you know, the more esoteric and then vice versa, so. Mm. Definitely. What else do we got? Well, let's see, I got a, I got a note from Phil Voistock, who uh, said that he wanted to pass on congratulations for what he views as a successful first Photocast Network roundtable, and he thinks that we're on to something, um, and... Uh, Requested that we made sure that we got all the other folks from the round tape from the from the uh, photocast network involved as well um, But uh, he liked the sort of freewheeling style of it and uh, uh, So it, it was a, 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 a Positive response. So I was uh, I was heartened by that. That's good to hear yeah, yeah, I, I, I think is, we'll have more It uh, is our plan isn't it to get more people on Yep I think we, we're trying to keep Trying to keep it to four at a time. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And I, and I received um, actually two mails with suggestions regarding the name we were, we were asking for. 
listener suggestions sent to info at photocastnetwork.com. And Richard Berry said we should call ourselves camera heads. Uh, <laughs> not, not gear heads, then. Propeller heads. Yeah, propeller heads, probably. And Lee Caligiuri sent in a whole list of suggestions. One is buzz session. Um, bull session. <laughs> bull session? Yeah. Bull session. Geek fest, talk fest. What's she, what's she trying to say about what we talk? Well, I don't really know. And then the one was photo fest. Um, I quite like that one. I, I, th I think we'll still wait for some more because that's just two listeners who sent in suggestions. So mm. I suggest we have um, a couple of more and just leave it at Photocast Network Roundtable for now. Yeah, and I think the first one was taken by the, the BuzzNet. It was take, is already taking uh, taken up by the uh, the BarberCast Network. Ah, ah, okay. That was a joke. Poor one, obviously. Oh no, <laughs> Buzz, the Buzz cuts. I was just trying to come up with a Buzz cut joke as well. <laughs> well, let's start off with uh, with some of the topics, so, and then uh, we can, if we have some time, we can kind of freewheel it after that. So. Uh, uh, Chris, why don't we start off with you with uh, metering exposure and and, and uh, well, why don't you tell us what you want to talk about and just go at it. Yeah, it's a it's a more technique related topic again, not that esoteric. Um, practical. I'm I'm sort of a practical person, so um, I want to talk about metering, how the light meter in your camera works, and um, how you can get the best out of it. And yeah, let's just get started and feel free to jump in whenever you think you might want to add something. So if we look at the light meters and the computers inside today's cameras, um, they've really come a long way, but they still work on the same basic principle that they used to work on for, you know, basically for ages. Um, do a quick experiment and take a picture, let's say, of a plain white surface and so that it fills the whole frame and then take another picture of a plain black surface and again fill the frame with it. Now, if you review both of those images on a camera's display, it's very likely that you see both of those pictures being very similar in terms of image brightness. And um, if you switch on the histogram, you'll see that they have very similar histograms. Now, you would expect the picture of the black surface to be darker than the white one, but that is not necessarily the case. And the reason for that is uh, in the way the light meter in your camera works. In its simplest form, um, the way the camera measures is that it assumes that the average brightness of the scene it sees is at a medium 18% gray level. That's what the camera is basically set to in the factory. And of course, the camera does, yeah, doesn't really know what it sees. It only sees differences um, in the bright levels in the scene. Now, you might wonder why still most of your pictures turn out with a, with a fairly good exposure. And the reason for that is that most normal daylight scenes uh, basically average to something in the area of 18% gray. But of course there are many special cases where, where that is entirely not true. A typical example here I guess would be a scene with backlight. That's, that's one of the I guess one of the examples that is usually used in teaching these kind of light situations. Um, that, that's where you have the person in the middle and the bright background and if you average that scene to 80% and set the exposure accordingly, you'll, yeah, you'll end up with that person being too dark because the camera takes all the bright background into account too when it measures. Now, mm -hmm. what can we do about these things? And 
a traditional photographer, I guess, would probably know from experience that for this scene, in order to get the subject well exposed, he'd have to expose, uh, to exposure compensate the camera. He'd have to exposure compensate upwards. And now, now we get a bit into the technology of cameras because today's cameras try to take a lot of those decisions out of your hand and the camera manufacturers have actually built in little computers into the camera that sort of help with that. Now if we look at that backlight situation again, the default metering mode for most cameras is um, on, on Canon is called matrix metering and in this mode the camera sort of splits the image up into a number of fields and looks at the brightness patterns and compares that with its built-in database and whose phone is going off there? Sorry, that was me. <laughs> Uh, Put your so, phones on vibrate. Yeah, please. <laughs> um, again, the camera looks at those brightness patterns and compares that with, with a database that it has built in, a database of, of hundreds or even more light situations, and it matches them up, and there's most likely one that matches that backlit scene. And with that match, the database also has instructions that tell the camera how to handle this scene and in the case of a backlight situation to exposure compensate upwards. So basically does what otherwise the photographer would have done anyway. At least, <laughs> at least to a certain point it tries to kind of emulate the experience that a, that a seasoned photographer has. Now, you might think that with this kind of a help, um, every conceivable situation is taken care of and the kind of the metering should be spot on all the time, but that is unfortunately not the case. The metering can still be fooled by many things. If you fully rely on the camera for the metering, um, there's a good chance that some of the images will still be too bright or too dark. So in the end, I'm afraid that it comes back to experience again. I, I guess everyone in this round um, has had this experience that you can't fully rely on the, on the light meter in your camera. Absolutely. Um, I, I tend to actually use uh, the spot metering and the and the partial spot quite a lot mm -hmm. in those situations. Okay. Um, do you want to explain that, or do you want? Would you, would you like me to? <laughs> well, yeah. Let's 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 quickly look at the different light light metering modes and what they do. So I just talked about the matrix metering, which is, as I mm. said, the default, and that's the one I personally use uh, most of yeah, the time. Yeah, me too. Most of the time. But um, I know that it's 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 going to be fooled by by scenes, for example, a, sh a snow scene, where you have a lot of white and um, just a few darker spots in there, some persons maybe, and and I just know out of experience that my camera will underexpose that scene. So, um, and because I know the quirks of of the metering system, I automatically exposure compensate for that. I just know that I have to give it a third, two thirds, or even a full stop upwards. So how do these other work, uh, modes work? Hmm. Well, the spot metering, if your camera's got it, is going to meter, what is it, 3% in the middle of the frame? It's something like that, isn't De it? Depends yeah. on the camera. Depends on the yeah. camera. Between 2 and 5, I think. Yeah. yeah, it's a really small dot right in the center of your frame, usually, or sometimes over the focus point, whichever focus point you've got selected. And it's going to meter the brightness of just that point there. Um, so if you're aware that that's the bit that you want metered to the 18% grey. And by the way, does anybody know why it's 18% grey? What What is with this 18%? You'd expect it to be 50% grey, wouldn't you? Yeah, I'm not sure. 
I'm not sure. I've something to do with printing, I think. Uh, I've heard 18%, I've heard 12%, but I've never really looked into that. Hmm. I have a feeling it's to do with um, print processes, um, but I'd, I'd love if, if somebody can write in and tell us. <coughs> I'm, I'm uh, pretty certain that it has to do with the fact that film photography was, or was, is a logarithmic uh, relationship, so that uh, it's not a linear kind of relationship, so that so that 18% actually ends up being in the middle. Uh, ah. But but uh, I could be wrong. And I'm sure okay. somebody will point out if I am. <laughs> right. Oh, well, there you go. We've, we've just blown all our credibility. Um, anyway, so going back to spot metering, um, basically the, the deal is you want to pick, with, with spot metering, you want to pick the part of the shot that is closest to mid-gray um, uh, that you want well exposed. Uh, put, your, put your spot meter over that and use that to get a meter reading. And um, for things like concerts on stage where you need to meter fast, um, I think usually, uh, tell, me if I'm, tell me if I'm talking rubbish here, guys, I tend to just meter off people's skin. Does that work Works for you guys? Very well, usually. Right. What 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 I usually use, um, if I don't have a, a consistent metering target with me, is that I know that if I meter off the back of my hand, which is usually the same the same brightness all the time, um, and correct that by about one stop, I have it. It, it kind of comes down to about 18% gray, so I can use that as an emergency metering target if I want to. Yeah, the way right. I learned the rule was that the, you actually meter the, the palm of your hand, because that it eliminates the, the variation in skin tone that people have. Right. So some people with uh, darker skin tones or very light skin tones that might not be um, as good, but... That's all right. of our, all the palm of right. our hands are all pretty uniform, regardless of what race or skin tone we are. So, but yeah. increasing it by one stop is usually the rule, and that's really good when you're like shooting out in the snow or where there's very little there that is actually anything close to gray. Right, and and of course, what you what you can use, uh, what you can always use is a gray card, which is a card that is 18% gray, and if you meter off that, um, you can be fairly sure that the scene is well exposed. Yeah, tricky to yeah, get somebody on stage to hold the card, though. <laughs> That's right. I was I was just going to suggest that, and it has it has some other advantages in that if you've got uh, if you've got one picture in your in your uh, camera card, uh, especially with digital photography, if you've got one picture that has that gray card in it, uh, and you've got an unusual white balance situation, and you didn't quite nail it with the camera setting. Um, it makes it a whole lot easier to correct uh, because you've got something that you know is a neutral in the picture. But, and but that you means, can, uh, right? But that means you'll have to have a fixed white balance. You can't have automatic white balance. Right. Right. Yeah. You because don't have to every, have uh, because then every every picture has its individual white balance, and especially in a yeah, let's say concert situation where you have colored lights that change, maybe you you get really very different light balances if you uh, white balances if you have this on automatic. Or shoot in raw. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. yeah or shoot in raw and nail it later. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the raw will store white balance data with the with the raw file, but the actual raw data isn't white balance. So it stores what its calculated white balance is in the EXIF data, I think, um, and then uses that in the post-processing. But you can then just apply consistent white balance to a whole group of raw files, even if you did have it on auto white balancing at the time. 
because that white balance data is just in the EXIF. It's not in the actual pixels. Yeah, I think what all this really stresses is the, is the fact that you have to be become very aware of what's happening lighting-wise, whether something is very backlit, whether there's a lot of things in the frame that are you know, high-key or, 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 or low-key, because it's that recognition of what the scene is, con- you know, what its content is in terms of tone and light that really determine which of the three metering systems that you're going to use. So mm. you'll develop it over time, and usually it's a result of the fact that you get a bunch of bad pictures, and then you, you know you slowly figure out, okay, when I have a severely backlit situation, that's when I need to, you know, go to weighted or spot metering or or apply some sort of compensation. Mm. You mentioned center weighted there, and we haven't discussed that. Do you want to quickly mention what that is? Yeah, yeah. Center weighted is was pretty much the 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 first advanced metering system that came about sometime uh, during the during the 60s, um, in which case, if you look through the viewfinder of a camera, you have a little circle in the middle of a viewfinder. It's a 12-millimeter reference circle. And on average, what happens is that the metering is weighted 60% around that circle and the other 40% outside of that circle. And... Um, it's actually the meter is actually shaped like a bell curve, so it starts off from the lower left-hand corner, goes up, and rises to the very peak of that circle, and then makes its way back down to the lower right-hand uh, corner. So it's not like it's metering off that in that circle entirely. Um, it's weighted that way because when most horizontal pictures are are, are shot, most of the important content content exists in the lower left hand of the frame, which is important to remember when you're doing a vertical shot because you, that, that, weighted, that weightedness is either going to be on the right or the left. But in any case, um, like, like uh, Chris said, it's 18% gray, so you always have to consider that whatever is falling within that area um, is going to be metered, uh, metered for that. But it's a great it's a great setting when uh, doing portraits because it emphasizes um, largely the the subject's face uh, face and body, but uh, also when you're dealing with a severely backlit situation, uh, it helps to meter off the most important part of your your subject, and minimizes how much the uh, the backlit scene or the light behind the subject is is emphasized for the meter. Right. Cool. Right. And the the most consistent results, if if I am a, if I am in a situation that has a consistent light, like in the same room, or I have a photo shoot where I have the light set up and they don't really change, um, the best results I get by using a gray card metering of that and then in manual just staying on that setting for the whole session and. Um, that this way the camera doesn't have to do a decision every time based on the content of the frame, but um, just has its setting and you can really, really work with that later on because you have a very consistent contact sheet. You still shooting JPEG, or do you not shoot RAW? It it really depends on the on the type of shot. If I do a shot, um, if I do a paid shot, and I really have to be sure I get the results right, um, I will probably go raw and have much more leeway later on to change things and, and white balance them, and even have have a stop up and down um, to to correct in terms of exposure. Right. Well, let's move on to uh, the next topic. Uh, Jeff, you wanted to talk about the uh, 
importance of printing. What, what would you like to say well, about that? <clears throat> well, you know, I, 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 I tried to find this article. I'd, I'd seen it some time ago in some uh, photo trade journal, um, but it was talking about the number or the percentage of, of photographs made today um, versus the number of those photographs that are printed. And that the digital revolution has done one thing in that it's increased the output of a lot of photographers and lots more people are taking pictures, especially lots more amateurs are making photographs with you know their camera phones and their point-and-shoot digital cameras and so forth and so on. But that we're printing a lot fewer photographs than we ever did before because, of course, when we shot film, we'd have the film processed and we'd get a 4x6 or whatever from, from every photograph. Um, now, we're not doing that. We're, we're not getting that kind of uh, 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 feedback in a physical object, and we're counting on these digital images in our computers to, uh, to suffice for our record of things. And the question that I, you know, as I, as I was reading this, I was thinking, you know, think about how many times in uh, the history of your family. And, you know, let's not necessarily talk about the creative photographer right at the moment. Just think about pictures of, uh, you know, the, the four of us or anybody who's listening as a child. Uh, somewhere in your life you can, <clears throat> excuse me, go back into a shoebox or a photo album or something and see a picture of yourself at age 10 or age 5 or, you know, uh, when, you, when you went off to university or whatever. Uh, the idea of being able to access those images quickly and easily and having a physical copy of them is important. And I think one of the things that we're uh, in danger of losing with the digital revolution is this problem of uh, we're, we're in danger of losing that connection to our past by the virtue of the fact that we just don't print as many of our pictures as we used to. And we certainly don't print every one that we make partly because we're just making so darn many of them. So I, I just thought that that would be an interesting topic, not only to just bring that up from the point of view of, of uh, having us uh, discuss it or think about it, but also to you know hopefully encourage uh, listeners to make sure that they do make prints of these events in their lives that are going to ultimately be important to them. Hmm. I, I agree with that, and not just events as well. I think if you've taken a photo that you're proud of, mm-hmm. print it out and put it on the wall. I, I've got uh, all around Absolutely. my desk here. I, I keep um, like a, a recent gallery around my desk. I've got some little, uh, you know, those little blobs of perspex with the with the crocodile clips mm-hmm. that come out the top, and, and I just have a little tiny printer. And whenever I take something new, uh, and I'm, you know, sometimes I'm not sure if I like it, and sometimes I'm really pleased with it, and you know, I print it out, I stick it in a crocodile clip, and I leave it all around my desk, and I and I switch those around as as i produce new stuff um and i just i think it helps to be surrounded by prints of what you've produced because the more you live with them the more you start to appreciate what it is good or bad about them and there's something absolutely and there's something about holding holding that print i mean i i'm, I'm as guilty uh of, of this as, as anyone else i can go for weeks if not months um of you know of making prints, but when I finally make a print and I'm holding it in my hand, it's it's you can't replace that experience for anything, and it just reminds me how much how much the print is actually probably the biggest part of photography. It's wonderful to to look at it on a screen, but when you hold a finished print that you've worked on and 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 you've you know you produce really well, there's there's nothing like it. 
Yeah, I agree. In fact, I've, I've always sort of my yardstick for success right from day one has been if I'm happy if I can take a photo that I think is, is worthwhile putting on the wall. Uh, to me, that, that hangability is, is the success or failure mark. I think part of the, the one of the reasons why people may not do it as much is just because they they have they have difficulty negotiating the luck of the print as compared to what they're seeing on on their monitor. Um, True. Do do, you, do your students uh, have difficulty with that, or are they pretty savvy with that? Well, you know, it's 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 interesting. Um, you know, I I talk to students about how we've always had this problem of the photograph not being an equivalent in terms of brightness and and uh, uh, the the colors that we see with our human eyes are different from the colors that we can see in photography and we've always had that problem but when we were shooting color negatives or color transparencies somehow we were more accepting of it than when we see that image on the computer screen and then print it and the colors aren't quite as saturated or the the uh, range isn't quite as as uh, remarkably long as it is on the computer screen uh, so but it, it's it's uh, once everybody kind of gets used to it, yeah, you sort of get used to the idea that, no, the print isn't going to look quite as vibrant as it does on the computer screen. Uh, and once you really kind of learn how to use Photoshop and some of those other tools to accurately preview what your image will look like on the computer screen when it's, you know, when it's printed, uh, you, you begin to accept the fact that, yeah, the color's a little dumber when it's printed than it is when it's, when it's on the screen. So... Is it just us, though, that are that, that um, discerning about our colour? I have a feeling that, that um, people who work with a subject like we work with photography tend to look at it in a quite a different way to the, to the person that's not working with it quite so, quite so uh, frequently. Um, it's like designers can't look at a piece of designed artwork, or, you know, design in, in advertising or whatever. You can't look at that and see it the way the man on the street does. Well, back when I used to uh, work as a as a custom color printer, printing, uh, making you know enlargements from negatives for uh, for folks, uh, and we had both a an automated machine and then also a, a custom line, which was the one I was responsible for. And the, you know, I would often get people coming in and saying, you know, you made me this print, and the color red sweater that my uh, grandmother was wearing isn't the right color red. And, you know, the question, of course, was, you know, how was I able to tell as the guy standing in a dark room in front of an enlarger what, what color red that was? So I'd say, you know, if you bring in the red sweater, I can match the red sweater. I can't guarantee your skin tone's not, not going to look a little wacky. But, <laughs> um, but uh, I think people do. People do have a sense of what colors are supposed to look like. Um, and, and it's those memory colors uh, that are more prevalent, I think, uh, the colors of, of skin tone and the colors of uh, foliage and the color of your favorite grandmother's favorite red sweater. Um, those kinds of memory colors are colors that we tend to, to, to think about or believe a little bit more. Wow. Okay, well, so that answers my question. I guess people do have a, and perhaps it's not even real, but perhaps people do have an attachment to, to colour and how things look uh, more so than I realised. I think I think you know everybody's got a favorite color, right? I mean everybody uh, everybody here at the at the round table and everybody listening has you know if somebody said what's your favorite color, they're you know they're gonna jump up with a 
with a color that they particularly like, and they'd be able to uh, discern that color. If you gave them a set of color swatches, they'd be able to pick that color out, I think. Wow. I think what's what's really interesting is of late is with the with the new printers that are being released by you know Canon and Epson and, and HP that provide um, better black and white capability than than we had before, and uh, that for me is is particularly uh, thrilling because I've always I always loved creating black and white prints and the fact that I can produce consistently good uh, black and white prints I think is really liberating not only for me but for anybody who just enjoys. You know that that monochrome that monochrome look, and the fact that you can derive it from from a color image fairly easily, uh, I think is fantastic. Hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. That 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 for a long time was the one sort of big puzzle piece missing from the digital print world was uh, high quality black and white, and that seems to be coming around. It's uh, it's getting better seemingly every day. Um, and and that part I think is it, it is real exciting because it it enables people to be able to express themselves in that range of monochromatic values as well as they've been able to in color for you know, a number of years now. Yeah. Chris, on on your site and in the, in the emails you get for, uh, for your for your show, do you get many questions in respect to 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 actual printing? And if so, what what are some of the common questions you get about it? Actually, no. That's that's very interesting. They the questions I receive are more more centered around um, how to take a pic, print it, and how to get it out there. So <laughs> can't be of much help there. Sorry. No, it's, mm. it's well, it's kind of interesting because I think the top, you know, yeah. when people are talking about digital photography, they always primarily talking about the camera or, or what's happening in Photoshop, and there isn't not a whole lot of discussion in terms of happening happening with the, what's happening with the print, which is kind of kind of reflects um, uh, the whole gist of, of Jeff's of Jeff's topic. I mean, so I, just, people, I guess I, I just want to go ahead, Chris. I, I just want to say, um, I guess for some people, it's just way too overwhelming because um, with uh, the digital photography, you have the ability to kind of produce this massive avalanche of pictures and um, then, then you get to the point where you have to choose and <laughs> cho- a choice between five 5,000 pictures is not that easy it was easier when, when <laughs> yeah, we were still true. doing film and just had like 50 pictures you know <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah the volume the volume does uh, does make it a little more complicated and I guess what I'm just advocating is that uh, people who are listening here make sure that they pull out out of those you know, 50,000 pictures or whatever that they pull out uh, you know a hundred or, or or two that that they find to be really useful and and uh, uh, particularly uh, uh, evocative of a particular time in their lives um, and I I find this with pictures of my own children uh, you know who uh, of course if, if anybody has kids you know that they they grow up faster than you could even believe and the idea of looking back I look I looked through some digital photos that I had not printed uh, just yesterday or the day before, and uh, you know saw my my 14 year old who's now you know six foot two uh, two years ago as who looked like now like you know two years ago looked like a little boy and now he looks like this great giant person, and uh, uh, recognizing that I did not have a printed document of that, and the the problem I think that 
that we may encounter. I mean, some of you probably have been involved in this technology long enough that you remember, oh, say, for example, zip drives uh, or perhaps even Cyquist drives. These are two pieces of technology that I used to own and used to use frequently and now no longer have any of. And made I sure that really I, old now. Yeah, I archived, I archived those things off onto uh, you know CDs, and now I have some archived off onto DVDs and onto hard drives. But you know what's going to happen twenty years from now, and when CD-ROM or DVD is an archaic technology, you know, heck, my first, the first computer that I owned used eight-inch floppy disks. You know, so the drive itself was, you know, five <laughs> times bigger than than my desktop machine that I'm sitting in front of right now. So you know, so the the question that I'm trying to 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 have us uh, as as people interested in imagery think about is what's going to happen to this stuff and and if you can commit yourself to keeping those images only in digitized format um, twenty years from now thirty years from now or or more so a hundred years from now what will happen to that archive of your own family history uh, and I think it's worth it's worth thinking about and I think it's worth taking some action and spending some some time and energy and and money to get those printed pieces of output that that uh, keep and preserve those kinds of pieces of family heritage so um, that's that that was sort of my soapbox for today <laughs> was to get up on to get up on the printed soapbox because when i found these pictures of my uh my now giant sized son uh looking like a, a a little tiny boy two years just two years ago i uh i i you know grabbed a bunch of prints and i or grabbed a bunch of files and i made some prints so that i had uh copies of these things that that could be put into a into a shoebox or into an album or uh you know taped to the wall or you know whatever it is that i want to do with them but now i have a physical object and i think Avirianex said something important about the the idea of being able to hold on to these things you know if you can if you can physically hold it it's very different than this uh you know glowing glowing phosphors that we're sitting in front of or the glowing lcds that we're sitting in front of but one of the things i have to say that i love about today's technology is when i go to a family event or something and someone wants to say oh i want to get a copy of the picture i just direct them to my Flickr site and say not only you can see it there but you can order a print from there you know eliminating the need oh, yeah. for me to have to go home and and make all these four by sixes yeah unfortunately we can't do that can't do that in the uk or, or europe yet i don't think but um but it's coming, I'm sure. Well, John, let's let's move on to your, your topic. You had uh, the whole idea about lenses for the new digital SLRs people may have gotten during the holiday. Right, right. Well, my thinking was this. We, we covered last week um, some subjects that were aimed at people who'd perhaps just got a new camera at Christmas. Um, and I was thinking about it. And one of the questions that we see most often um, from people who've just got SLRs is, what lenses should I buy? Um, and it occurred to me that that, that that question gets asked an awful lot. Um, and I, 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 my answer to it, funnily enough, is, is, is not what people are going to expect. My, my answer is going to be, don't buy anything yet. Um, because... Um, people who who've just bought an SLR and they're they're excited about the whole the, the difference between that and their their point and shoot cameras. They can put new lenses on it. Um, they can do all these different styles of photography. They can get wide apertures and throw backgrounds out of focus. They can get macro lenses and get right close into things. They can get wide angle lenses and do these huge panoramas. And uh, quite often, I find that uh, the first question I ask people is, "Well, what kind of photos do you like taking?" 
and they kind of say, well, um, uh, I'd take photos of the family and the dog and the cat and, you know, and actually there's not really much of a, of a plan uh, for what kind of lenses people need. John? Chris is gone. Uh, I'm, I'm here. Oh, oh, you're there. I can what hear hap- you. What happened? I don't know. I just I did know. something beeped on my Skype thing, and then I lost John. Uh, well, I, I, I sent a link to the to the group that we had been chatting with the uh, uh, last time we did this. Oh, okay. Maybe that should, maybe I shouldn't have done that. So there you okay, go. can you hear me oh, now? You are. Welcome back. Can you hear yes, me now? Can. can you hear me now? <laughs> I don't know. We've got well, a, we've uh, got a series uh, of we've got a series of uh, cell uh, mobile phone ads uh, here in the in the U.S. You know where there's a guy walking around the countryside uh, in various obscure places talking on his cell phone. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. I don't know what earth, uh, what happened there. For some reason it it jumped from one input to another on my on my input on my sound input. Oh no. Yeah, weird. Anyway, just try to start ah, technology. off where you left off. Uh, if you can remember, I, I don't where, know was, where, where was that? <laughs> <laughs> I think you were saying uh, I was saying something along the lines about holding off uh, getting a lens before yeah. you have a sense of what you want to shoot. I think that's right. I was talking about people who had um, just bought a lens, just bought a camera for Christmas, and wanted to know what lens to buy next. Um, and whenever I ask those people, well, what kind of photos do you like to shoot? They, they're never really able to give me a, a clear answer. Um, you know, quite often they say, oh, well, I'd, I'd like to do some macros. Um, oh, and I'd, I'd love to do some wide angle, and I'd love to do this, and I'd love to do that. But they never seem to um, be able to say, right, well, um, the last time I tried to shoot a wide angle shot, um, I had a real trouble, I couldn't get it all in, or whatever. So, um, my advice, uh, I guess, on this particular question is to hold off until you find something you can't do. Um, and more importantly than that is to learn the lens you've got. Um, spend as much time with that lens as you can. Um, and it might be just the lens that came with your camera, which probably means it's going to be something like an 18mm to 50mm zoom. Um, if you've got one of the, the sort of uh, the 400D type uh, or D80 or, or any of the, the common lower priced SLRs out now, and those are those are good lenses to get you started with. Um, they go fairly wide and they they zoom in for reasonable portraits, and you know those lenses are going to give you uh, the vast majority of the normal kind of shots you want to take. And I think from there, the time you start finding you can't zoom out far enough, or the time you can't zoom in far enough, far enough, if that happens to you a couple of times, that's the time to start thinking about what lens to get next. Um, because, you know, we should be spending as much money as we can on the lenses and not worrying so much about the camera. Um, you guys agreeing here? Or? Oh, yeah, I think it's, that's, that's excellent advice. Um, cause that's, that's what I stick to now. I mean, there's always, you're always impressed by somebody who has like a, you know, a 28 to 72.8 lens, you know, that honking piece <laughs> of glass looks very impressive on a, on a camera. Or oh, one of those gray lenses. <laughs> But you know, yeah, hands up everyone who's got a gray lens. It really comes down to is it, w- <laughs> what do you need to shoot? It's at the, it's at the point where you're finding that you're not able to get wide enough consistently, or not able to get close up uh, consistently, and it's and it's becoming more of a frustration than than a joy that you need to consider getting another lens, and not just getting another lens because you'll get quote unquote better quality from it. Hmm. 
Well, I, I mean, quality is a good reason to upgrade cause, because sometimes those those starter kit lenses can be um, a little. Uh, they they have their limitations, and sometimes their their aperture doesn't doesn't go wide enough, and their low light performance is therefore not that good. Sometimes they're not quite as sharp as maybe you'd like. So if you're if you're a real um, experienced photographer and you can see the softness, then sure, go go ahead and, and upgrade to a uh, a much higher quality lens. In, in Canon terms, that would be an L. Uh, in Nikon terms, one, perhaps one of you guys knows what a Nikon equivalent of an L is. I, I'm afraid I don't know Nikon. Um, but uh, I think, you know, capability and quality are good reasons to upgrade. But just because you got a new camera, um, as excited as, uh, exciting as that may be, um, that's not a good reason to go and buy a new lens because you're going to buy something and, and find that it doesn't do something that you need. Um, I, I have a piece of advice that that uh, would be to downgrade your your lens, and and by, by that what I'm what I mean is uh, I find that a lot of people, especially newcomers to photography, spend so much try, time uh, using their zoom, zooming in and out, and and uh, playing with the zoom, that they don't spend as much time figuring out where the right place to stand to make the photograph is. So I encourage. Uh, beginners especially to grab a piece of uh, electrical tape or some other kind of tape and tape the zoom lens of their camera uh, in, a, in some sort of standard spot, you know, pick a middle part of the scale and uh, force, it forces them to physically move themselves around to adjust the framing of the photograph, which in turn helps them uh, understand, begin to understand relationships of the placement of the camera to the uh, to the way the subject is recorded, so I find uh, that you know I don't I don't know if it's downgrading, but I I, I think uh, uh, you know stupefying uh, your 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 lens a little bit so that it's not quite as capable can be just as as useful as upgrading to a fancier lens that does more stuff. Yeah, it it is it is kind of um, giving your creativity a boost by um, by limitation by self limitation. Yep. Mm. Le I, so I learn to use Nike I Zoom first, is what you're saying. Sneaker Zoom, yeah. <laughs> sneaker right, Zoom. Sneaker yeah. Zoom. Sneaker <laughs> Zoom. Nike Sorry, Zoom. we can't, can't Nike say Nike Zoom. Zoom until they pay us. Okay. Ka-ching. No, I keep telling, I keep telling uh, my listeners and also on the, on the seminars, my students, that um, that's, that's one of the things. Actually, that's an exercise. I send them off to take pictures with one focal length only for... For a certain while, and that really helps um, helps them to see the world with with different eyes and to learn about this specific focal length. Mm. It's also a good experience. I mean, uh, you know, I, I imagine that a number of us here p would prefer to shoot with prime lenses rather than zooms if we can. Yes. Um, uh, primes being for for those that don't know, prime is is a lens that doesn't have a zoom on it. So you might get, for example, a 50 millimeter prime, and that's it. It's stuck at 50 millimeters. It'll autofocus and it'll have a variable aperture, but th it won't zoom in and out. And that, by and large, means that the quality of the lens is considerably superior to a uh, zoom lens. Um, certainly, zoom lenses have good spots and bad spots. So uh, a prime lens will be pretty good. The whole time. Yeah, I highly recommend it. The uh, fifty one point eight, I think, is is just for the price. You can usually get it for a hundred dollars or a little bit less. It gives you a one point oh, yeah. fast aperture, which typically is one of the disadvantages of the kit lenses that come come with the cameras that don't allow you to to shoot in low light without having having to use flash. And you know, on on the today's most of today's digital SLRs because of the 
magnification factor it turns into like a 75 millimeter so if people are interested in portraits it just becomes an ideal portrait lens Mm. absolutely i shot a couple of um uh, group shots and and kid shots with um uh, one of those 50 mil lenses i borrowed actually i borrowed lee's um and and the the performance of that thing in in low light is just incredible it's makes it uh, quite a different look to the photos than, than you would get if you use flash a lot more pleasing. So. Well, if you don't have any okay. more on that topic, I'll just move on to mine. Uh, okay. Which is about self-assignments. Um, just like most of the other people out there, I've bemoaned many a day where where I felt like I had all this camera equipment, but I wasn't producing any any photographs. Or I would go out there loaded for bear, you know, with a camera bag filled with, you know, a, a camera body, a variety of lenses, filters, and so on. And I come back and I haven't shot more than a dozen pictures. And um, I just found that after a while that if I didn't have a particular focus, sometimes just going out there hoping to see something just wasn't happening. So... Um, Actually, this this year I created a um, an assignment for myself to choose a particular topic and just shoot images of that for a week, and I and I post them to my to uh, to my blog, and I I found that not only has that helped me to to create images that I otherwise wouldn't have created, but it gives me a, a sort of a, a focus. Um, of it, it refines how I see. Uh, as a result of choosing a topic, like one, I think the one I, I spent the second week doing was was uh, focusing on shopping carts, which at first I didn't want to do because I said, "What the hell can I do with with shopping carts?" But you know, I couldn't think of anything else. And then that you know Sunday came and I had to pick something, so I just did that. And surprisingly enough, all of a sudden I started seeing shopping carts carts everywhere. And then I would just all of a sudden I was really challenged to try to make interesting photographs of shopping carts um this past week i've been choosing um things just that i that i find in my house photographing them and then using a variety of different filters in photoshop try to make them more than just you know documents of objects that i've found but try to make them really into sort of dynamic photographs and I think that a lot of photographers, both amateur and, and professional, sometimes get into a rut where they feel like, you know, it's kind of like um, writer's block, but for photographers, where you just have you have this equipment, but you don't think that there's anything to shoot. And there's always something to shoot. It's just, you know, changing the way that we're looking at everything around us. And um, I found that, that that for me, just in the year so far, it's been it's been a lot of fun, but it's it can be a little nerve wracking, particularly when you not only commit to doing it, but but then you you tell everybody who who visits your blog or listens to your podcast that you're going to be posting these images, and the pressure's a little you know is on then. But I'm finding it's really good because I'm shooting every day, which I think is is really important rather than waiting for the weekend and hoping that you'll find something find something to shoot. So. I don't know what your guys' experience is with self-assignments, but I'd be curious to hear about it. Uh, actually, I have a couple of ongoing self-assignments that I uh, I look for every everywhere everywhere I'm going, whatever I'm doing. Uh, if I'm on a 
a different uh, assignment for myself on the day. I, I still look for the other assignments, my ongoing assignments. I mean, one of them, anybody that, that knows me will know that I'm fascinated with skies and I'm forever taking photographs of skies. So I, I'm building up over the uh, over the years a collection of, of sky pictures. And so, I mean, that's just one of my ongoing. I've got, I've got sort of three or four ongoing collections that I'm working on. And um, I don't like to tell people what they are, actually. The sky is one I mentioned because because uh, people know about that one already. But there's there's two or three things I I particularly look out for, and I find that every now and then you know I go somewhere and I see because it's something that's in the back of my mind, like you with the shopping carts. Um, it's not something that I would necessarily have thought of to take a photo of, but when I see it, it makes me think of makes me think of that little collection, and you know, and I go and take the shot, and sometimes it works out well. How about you, Jeff, Chris? Well, I. Uh I, I like to set myself uh, goals that force me to see the world, uh, sort of like your shopping cart thing, um, though I'll do something like uh, when I wake up in the morning, I have to take a photograph, and then I have to take a photograph every 30 minutes for the rest of the day, uh, regardless of where I am or what I'm doing. And uh, you know, I set a little alarm uh, so that I can remind myself to, uh, to do that. And it's surprising to me in locations where you would think in an ordinary day, you would think, well, there's not going to be anything to photograph here. But uh, you almost always find something to photograph. Uh, and even when you don't find something to photograph, you're, you're often, at least I am, often surprised at what it is that I discover uh, in in my environment that I might not have ever thought of as a photograph. So um, it's, you know, it's a little, it's a mind trick, sort of like the shopping carts mind trick. You know, you're, you know, well, how could I ever find photographs of shopping carts to be interesting? Uh, how could I ever find uh, something, regardless of where I am, that's interesting enough to photograph? And, and by golly, you do. And what that has sometimes done for me is forced me into, not forced me, but led me, I guess, better word, into uh, an, an area or a, a body of work that, uh, where I can make a small series of photographs of something that I previously never would have imagined myself being interested in. I do self-assignments in yet another way, and um, it's, it's choosing a particularly uninteresting subject and taking a hundred pictures of that. So you, you basically have the one that I that I kind of gave to my listeners was lock yourself in your bathroom and take a hundred pictures, and you get through different phases there. The first twenty are easy. I mean, you'll find lots of stuff. Then after, well, up up to fifty, you are starting to struggle, and then you totally run out of ideas. And then um, when you then stick to it and really force yourself into it, you all of a sudden start doing things that you wouldn't have thought you would do, like, um, whatever, placing the camera inside something that you wouldn't have placed <laughs> it, or, or um, um, I don't know. I mean, you, you will really force yourself, or have to force yourself to, to, to be creative, and, and by, by making yourself run out of ideas, you actually get to the point where, where you start funny things that you wouldn't have tried before. It's like getting past the pain barrier. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, actually, I, I like the 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 hundred thing in particular because and um, John, you've got John, to I, get a I think 
I think that 100 pictures in the bathroom thing actually goes back to you, doesn't it? Does it? Well, it was a, it was a thread on the forum. Um, but I the point is... you suggested it, that initially. It's, <laughs> it's got to be, though. It's got to be a limit. Um, uh, you, whether it's 30 or 100 or, or anywhere in between, I think the point is to, um, to try and get to that limit and then stop. Um, because... Um, if you stop early, then all you do is you use up all the photos you've got in mind and you, then you don't think anymore and it doesn't force you to, to be more creative. But if you've got more ideas than the limit, then it forces you to be a little more selective as well. So you find yourself saying, OK, well, I've got maybe five shots left before I hit my 30 or before I hit my 100 and I've got these ideas. You know, which one's going to be the good idea and how am I going to line this up so that I take it well? So, you know, limiting yourself as well uh, as well as forcing yourself to do more than you would help, expect. I think those are both very valuable for, for your creativity. Yeah, t right. Another one that, that works really well is um, walk 50 paces and then from where you are then take 100 pictures from that one spot. Yeah, and look at how many strange people look at you funny when you do it. <laughs> well, <laughs> you have to get over that, of course. <laughs> or, or drive in the car... A, a set number of minutes um, in right. a particular direction. Um, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna go east for for 15 minutes and park the car at 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 that 15 when that 15 minutes is up and uh, get out and find out what I what I find there. You know, as long as, right. as, long as it's a safe spot to get out of. <laughs> Avoid the freeway. <laughs> Just try to. <laughs> I can see some sort of lawsuit coming at me from somebody somewhere out there. Well, I got out of the car, and it was right in the middle of the freeway. So use your common sense. And this yeah. kind of goes back to that whole idea that uh, that you had earlier about taping the uh, the uh, the zoom lens, because I think um, that a self-assignment could be just you know setting the zoom at, at, at the widest angle lens and just shooting for a fixed period of time only at that focal length. And not you know zooming back and forth as a way of getting to know um, how a particular focal length range or focal length um, can impact the look of a photograph. Absolutely, or or you know making uh, X number of photographs without looking through the lens, you know paying no attention to what the exact boundaries of the viewfinder are, but allowing the camera to kind of semi-automatically make pictures obviously you're pointing it in the in a particular direction but you may be pointing it in a particular direction uh, where you're not exactly sure of what the camera is going to give you and I think that can be interesting too because you can get those little elements uh, impinging appearing from the edges of the frame that that uh, that make the photograph more visually exciting right well one Absolutely. I, I do a lot of shots like that where I just hold the, shot, hold the camera away from my body and just shoot without looking through the viewfinder. Uh, you get some really interesting views with that. Actually, be before I forget, because we talked about this briefly the last time we, were, uh, we did this roundtable, we were talking about holding the camera steady, and something I thought of afterwards was how many people today with cameras that have the LCD panels on the back... Uh, don't use the viewfinder. And in fact, now there's. I, I, I took a picture at a, an event the other day with somebody else's camera. They handed me, you know, could you take a picture of, of us uh, standing in front of this this uh, place? And and I, uh, it, there was no viewfinder on the camera. And holding the camera steady with the camera held away from your body is really hard to do. So uh, for those people who uh, remember back to our discussion about holding the camera still from last time. Uh, 
avoid the temptation to use the LCD panel as a viewfinder. On most of the DSLRs, it, it doesn't function that way, which, of course, is a positive. So, <laughs> well, we in- Absolutely. We ended up the, the last week with some either tips or product suggestions. So uh, I thought that was a nice, uh, a nice uh, bit that Chris had recommended and like to continue uh, doing that. Um, I'll start off by um, recommending a, a product. It's called the Upstrap, which I think is uh, probably the best camera strap I've ever used. It has some. It's it's considered the a non-slip strap. So for those of you who like carrying your your cameras off of your shoulder rather than around your neck, one of the biggest problems with most straps is that they slip off your shoulder, particularly if you're wearing a, uh, a jacket of some sort where it's very slick, and the upstrap has sort of these beaded little uh, nipples, for lack of a better word, that uh, allow it to be really secure uh, on, on your shoulder. And the straps are, are fairly thin, but they're pretty, pretty, pretty rugged, and uh, I've been using, using them for about two years, and I just love them and I really particularly like the thin strap because it makes it easier easy to wrap the strap around my hand because sometimes I don't even want to wear it on my neck or on my shoulder but I want it like secured secured on my hand and the, the strap allows me to do uh, to do just that so I, I highly recommend them they're upstrap U-P-S-T-R-A-P cool. so it's, it's, it's product suggestions today <laughs> Because um, I hope not, because mine's not a product. Mine's not a product <laughs> either. So there, <laughs> mine is. Mine is okay. Um, let me go next because it, it really fits the topic well. Um, I personally don't like neck straps because um, I usually hold the camera in the hand. I don't hang it around my neck or over my shoulder, and therefore I was I was looking really hard to find a hand strap that I could attach to the camera that just goes around the hand, like like with a with a little video camera where you slide the hand through a strap mm-hmm. and the problem I had was that um, the camera only had those two um, things where you attach the neck strap on the top but it did, didn't have one on the bottom so um, I finally found what's called the Hakuba hand strap H-A-K-U-B-A and that attaches on the top to where you would attach the, the neck strap on the right side of your camera and on the bottom it has a little piece of um, plastic that you uh, screw into the into the thread for the tripod so basically you end up having having this this strap that you can um, yeah just neat. slide your hand through and it works for me it works just perfect because um, whenever I had a neck strap um, I ended up wrapping that around my hand a few times and it's, it's kind of it was it was too much hassle for me because I never hang it around my neck. And how about how about cool. you, John? Um, I'm thinking of changing mine actually. Now, on the strength <laughs> of what we've just talked about, um, <laughs> uh, Chris is. I am actually with Chris on this one. Um, I don't like neck straps all that much either. I find that um, having the camera sort of dangling around my neck means that when I when I move around, it sort of bounces against my body, and I don't much like that. Uh, I prefer to have the the camera strapped to my hand, and uh, I, I use um, a hand strap just like Chris's. And only I don't use the Hakuba one. I have the um, uh, the battery grip, which is my new recommendation for this week. I, w- I was going to recommend something else. I'll save that for another week. Um, 
so I, I like the, the vertical battery grips, um, partly because they come with another place that you can attach your strap to, so you can just get one of the, the simple cheap straps rather than the Hukuba one that screws into the bottom. But the main reason I like them is because when you want to take a portrait um, uh, photograph, the, you hold the camera vertically, and rather than having your arm waving around in the air, you've got a, a vertical hand grip which has got duplicate controls. So you've got a shutter button, you've got the... Um, uh, the scroll wheels and things underneath your fingers already it's there on the on the vertical hand grip and I found that when I first got that um, it, it actually meant that I for some reason I, I found myself taking an awful lot more vertical portrait shots than I ever had before uh, and it quite changed the way I saw the world for a little while so I think that's a creative thing and just a, a usability thing um, and it, sure it's got two batteries in it as well which is fine if you manage to take an awful lot of photographs but I've never managed to empty a single battery so a lot more useful than the two batteries to me is the vertical hand grip with the um, duplicate controls and Jeff? Cool uh, mine's not going to be a product. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> mine's, mine's, mine's a mine's a visual resource, um, and I, I I think about it because I, uh, I I visit it at least once every two or three days, um, and it's a uh, a gallery website called Photo Eye. How many of you guys are are you, anybody familiar with Photo Eye? No. Um, I've heard of it. Uh, uh, you know, Photo P H O T O. E-Y-E, so it's not the letter I, photoi.com. And photoi is, is an interesting resource, and it's, I think it's interesting for a number of, of reasons. It is several different things. Photoi is a physical gallery space in Santa Fe, New Mexico, which is an amazing uh, gallery city to begin with, um, and they have a, a terrific photo gallery there. So they're a physical bricks-and-mortar gallery space. They are also a bookstore, so if you're looking for a photographic book that you can't find at Amazon or any one of the other uh, uh, retailers that typically will uh, sell a lot of photo books, Photo Eye probably has it. Um, but they also have two different online gallery functions. Um, one is their juried space, which is called the Photo Eye Gallery, um, and or actually the Photo Eye Photographers Showcase. And then they, uh, which is which is a, a juried space, so that uh, the only work that's in there is work that has passed muster of their curatorial staff. And then they also have the Photo Eye Bistro, which is a sort of semi-juried space. Uh, all they're really looking for is somebody who has uh, at least a, a semi-serious commitment to photography and who will pony up the the money to be on the space. Um, and between their photographer showcase and the uh, uh, the photo bistro space, which is linked off of photoi.com, um, you can find a really remarkable range of contemporary photography. Find out what other people are doing uh, with the imagery and uh, see the sort of things that they are featuring and finding useful uh, and uh, finding uh, interesting on on uh, on the web so uh i use it just to kind of keep myself up to date on what's going on in photography at least in in the fine art photography world at least in the fine art photography world um in uh, in america uh in in the southwest so it's uh it's worth taking a look at photoi.com 
That's cool. I'm just looking now. They've got some Magnum photographer um, prints yes. on here at the moment as well. It's These a, are great. It's, it's another. It's another. The thing that they have is they have uh, a section of the uh, of of the website that is uh, just Magnum photography, uh, and then they also publish. I think it's quarterly a magazine called the Photo Eye Book List, which is essentially a very high end, high quality uh, uh, book review of currently published photo books. Uh, very interesting, interesting place uh, run by uh, really good, interesting folks and um, a real legitimate kind of a kind of a business. So mm. um, I'd encourage people to just take a look because you know feeding yourself visually, I think, is an important part of learning how to be a photographer. That's a great recommendation. Thank you, Jeff. Yeah, that's good. Uh, so why don't we tell everybody where they can find us? Um, you can find me at. Uh, my podcast, thecandidframe.com, at thecandidframe.com. And you can uh, find Tips from the Top Floor at tipsfromthetopfloor.com. And uh, Jeff Curto's camera position is at cameraposition.com. And Photo Walkthrough is rather predictably at photowalkthrough.com. <laughs> and so, I suppose we can... We can clues are in the name, really. <laughs> and you can find out about... All of our shows, and including some of the shows uh, by some of the hosts that aren't able, weren't able to join us today, at thephotocastnetwork.com. So, till next time, guys. Thank you. Hey, thanks. This was great. Thanks. Really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Goodbye. I don't know what you're going to do about that dropout in the middle. Figure it out. Put in, yeah. some ele- put in some elevator music. <laughs> Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com. Photocastnetwork.com.